Until I interviewed Dr. Todd Grande, who you'll hear later in this episode, I didn't actually realize that psychopathy was not on the cluster B spectrum. I had thought it was lumped in with sociopathy and also diagnosed as antisocial personality disorder. I was shocked when Dr. Grande mentioned that psychopathy isn't a disorder in the DSM, the Diagnostic and Statistical Manual of Psychiatry. He said psychopathy is an area of study, but it's not diagnosed clinically. I find this very disturbing. I believe psychopathy is the number one public health crisis in the world. It's not just the number one threat to humanity, but also to the animals who we share this planet with and the planet herself. I'm Meredith Miller, and this is the Inner Integration Podcast, where you'll learn the mindsets and tools to self-heal after narcissistic abuse. Humanity has wiped out 60% of animal populations since the 1970s, according to a recent World Wildlife Foundation study. Corporations run by psychopaths and psychopathic values are destroying the environment with myopic vision and zero thought for future generations. They are contributing to global climate change with mafia tactics to keep fossil fuels in business while subverting clean energy technologies. There's also geoengineering, which is a fancy word for spraying chemical and biological shit in the skies. By the way, that's not a conspiracy theory. It's been disclosed by NASA. And now in 2019, Harvard and Bill Gates teamed up to launch the next level of disastrous geoengineering practices to inject chemicals into the Earth's stratosphere in order to block the sunlight. Now, before you start thinking, Meredith, you're batshit cray cray, you can find that in a British scientific publication called Nature. I've put that link in the show notes. The military-industrial complex, along with private quote-unquote defense corporations, defense being a gaslighting term that actually means offense, feed themselves in the business of war for profit, all in the name of spreading democracy and freedom around the world. They've been devastating innocent people's lives and creating a global migrant crisis of all the displaced victims of these bombs of democracy and freedom. The USA dropped 26,000 bombs in 2016 alone around the world. That number has gone up in the recent years. After Wall Street extorted billions of dollars from American taxpayers in 2008 and 2009 in the great bank heist and forced millions of Americans out of their homes through deceptive mortgages, subprime lending, there were six times as many foreclosed and empty homes as there were homeless people in the streets. In what kind of world does that make sense? We have a massive abuse of privacy in USA where people were tricked through manufactured consent to go along with these unconstitutional and totally illegal practices of wiretapping, recording every email and phone call made, all in the name of fear. Fear propaganda is used by the mainstream media, of which 90% is owned by six mega corporations who have a vested interest in gaslighting the public into believing their spins on reality. There are loads of pedophiles raping and abusing children in churches, spiritual organizations, children's organizations, Hollywood, and political capitals. Current estimates of the amount of children involved in sex trade is 600,000 to 800,000 in the USA alone and 8 million worldwide. 
Children live on average two years in sex slavery before they die or are murdered, some of them through satanic ritual killings. These statistics came from the International Tribunal for Natural Justice, and you'll find the link to the video in the show notes. The only explanation I can find for these problems in the world is psychopathy. Don't you find it incredibly odd that the leading text on psychiatric issues does not include psychopathy as a diagnosable disorder? It seems to me that it should have a massive section devoted to psychopathy, and mental health professionals should be educated thoroughly in these matters. You could argue that it's just ignorance that psychopathy isn't highlighted in the DSM, but at this point, with the internet and readily available information at our fingertips, I believe it's willful ignorance at best, and at worst, a massive conspiracy to hide this major problem in the world in order to maintain the status quo. This, of course, makes me question who writes the DSM, and more importantly, who funds them. Because it's very likely that their agenda is to subvert awareness of this public global health crisis. We can go from the macro vision to the micro vision and take a look at families. Psychopathy is causing extreme dysfunction at the familial level through transgenerational traumas that cause families to split up and kids to grow up as abusers or as victims with PTSD, low self-worth, people-pleasing tendencies, and a mental programming to caretake more abusive people like their abusive family members because that was presented as the model of love. We look at interpersonal relationships, intimate partnerships, friendships, and the work environment, and we see much of the same thing involving exploitation, manipulation, abuse, deception, con artistry, and destruction. As you'll hear later in this episode from Dr. Todd Grande, psychopathy is different than sociopathy, or what the scientific model refers to as antisocial personality disorder. He describes the sociopaths, or ASPDs, as impulsive and emotionally unregulated, which leads them to get caught more often and often end up in prison. The psychopaths, on the other hand, are very calculating and plan carefully their crimes while controlling their public perception through charm and charisma. While both are disorders of the conscience, I believe according to this model, psychopathy is far more dangerous because psychopaths are able to be more covert and get away with their abuse, not just on an interpersonal level, but also in families and society at large. Millions of people are victims of psychopathy, and most of them don't even know yet. There is a small percentage of those of us who are awake and able to recognize this public health crisis. I believe it is our responsibility to share this awareness with anyone who will listen before it's too late. Don't waste your time trying to wake up people who don't want to hear you. Let them be. Focus on those who are receptive to new ideas and curious to seek more. Those who are willing to do their own research and not just believe everything the mainstream news establishment tells them. Those who are willing and able to think for themselves and question reality. Point out some facts. Point them towards some resources and then let them discover more on their own. Encourage discussions about these topics with those who are interested and willing to participate. Now, I want to invite you to hear the interview I did with Dr. Todd Grande, followed by a clip from one of my YouTube videos on recognizing these kinds of predators in your life. 
Today, I have a special guest for you. Someone had seen his YouTube channel and recommended that I interview him. So I have here today Dr. Todd Grande, who's a licensed professional counselor of mental health, licensed chemical dependency professional, and a certified advanced alcohol and drug counselor in the state of Delaware. And he's also a national certified counselor. He holds a master's degree of science in community counseling from Wilmington University and a PhD in counselor education and supervision from Regent University. He's an associate professor in Wilmington University's CAC REP accredited clinical mental health counseling program. Dr. Grande is the current president of the Delaware Board of Mental Health and Chemical Dependency Professionals. He is a contractor at Survivors of Abuse and Recovery, abbreviated SOAR, S-O-A-R, and he provides consultation to various mental health agencies. Dr. Grande created and maintains a YouTube channel dedicated to counselor education and supervision. I highly recommend checking out his YouTube channel because you're going to see lots of information on there about narcissism, psychopathy, sociopathy, and cluster B disorders in general. So welcome, Todd. Thank you, Meredith. So I'm going to start asking him some questions that you guys have contributed from the community. The first question that everybody wants to know is, what is the difference between a sociopath and a psychopath? That's a question I've heard before. It's a popular question, and there's a lot of misconceptions around it. So kind of to start with with this question, it's important to understand that these two terms, psychopathy and sociopathy, are used in the popular culture differently than they're used by scientists. So as somebody who does research, uh, we really don't use sociopathy anymore. That term died out in actually in the 70s. Wow. And we just use psychopathy, but we have different types of psychopathy. So sociopathy, I think, is popular because we see it in movies and TV. So when we talk about, from a scientific point of view, psychopathy, we refer to factor one and factor two psychopathy. So factor is really just a fancy word for essentially a type. So there's two types of psychopathy. So the first type, what they call factor one, is interpersonal and affective. So this is an individual who has a grandiose sense of self. They tend to be uh, deceitful. We call it pathological lying. We see a manipulative component, like a con artist or a confidence man, a lack of remorse, guilt, shallow affect, and one of the most noticeable elements is like a superficial charm. So they're really good at, and again, it kind of ties with manipulation. They're really good at convincing people to give them money, to give them favors, status. Uh, it's kind of a uh, dominant factor, and it has a narcissistic component to it. Now, the second factor, factor two psychopathy, this is what we call sociopathy. So this is where that word would connect to research. So factor two psychopathy is the social deviance factor, and it lines up fairly closely with the diagnosis antisocial personality disorder, which is a cluster B personality disorder. So here we see traits that would really sound familiar if you're familiar with antisocial. So you'd see impulsivity, irresponsibility, what they call a parasitic lifestyle, so kind of living off others and not contributing. And we also see a number of criminal characteristics, poor behavioral control, juvenile delinquency, a tendency to be released from custody and then reoffend, so recidivism, and what they call criminal versatility, which is when somebody becomes very good at a lot of different types of crime. So in general, factor one is callous and calculating, that's psychopathy, and sociopathy is emotionally dysregulated and in pain, and probably they commit more crimes, but they're not as good at being a criminal, if that makes sense. So the psychopath isn't actually part of the cluster B 
personality disorders. Is that what you're saying? Right. Psychopathy, the, the psychopath, is separate. It's an item that we research, but you won't find that word in the main part of the DSM, the Diagnostic and Statistical Manual. There's a, there's a part in the back with the dimensional model of personality where they do have a psychopathic specifier, but that's the only place we actually see that word. So psychopathy is an area of study. Antisocial personality disorder is the official disorder that somebody could be diagnosed with. Wow. So if, say, a psychopath walked into, like, say, your office or someone's office who was going to diagnose them with something, how would they be diagnosed? Well, that's, that's an excellent question. Technically, if somebody has factor one psychopathy, there's no diagnosis that lines up really tightly with that. Uh, you could make an argument that they might pick up the antisocial personality disorder diagnosis because they have some factor two traits or the pathological lying or the grandiosity or something connects back to what the clinician thinks they should do. But in, you know, for, in my experience, I find it to be somewhat like antisocial, but really split between antisocial and narcissistic because narcissism has that dominance, that social confidence, especially grandiose narcissism. It has a lot of overlap with psychopathy. So it's really, in a sense, narcissism, and then you have these added components of kind of the charm and the shallow affect and trying to manipulate people. Although, of course, we see that in, in narcissism as well, right? That tendency to exploit people. So yeah, I wouldn't necessarily say there's a perfect diagnosis that lines up with psychopathy. Wow, that's interesting because some people talk about how, you know, it seems like they have narcissistic characteristics. It also seems like they have the ASPD characteristics. Right. And, and those, those two, psychopathy and narcissism, tend, we call this loading. They tend to load together, meaning they tend to appear together when we study them. And if there's, an, there's another trait in this grouping called Machiavellianism, which is uh, disregarding the feelings and needs of others. And when these three combine, this is called the dark triad, and this is fairly common. And again, it doesn't line up perfectly with any, any diagnosis, but it's a set of traits that tend to come together. Like people tend to have characteristics from all those traits at the same time. Right. I've definitely heard that before, too. I think there's some confusion out there. There isn't really clear information sometimes about what are those distinctions and how do they fit together, say, in one person and how they present themselves? Yeah, I think I think it's because it's a popular topic and, and we have all this media about it that people tend to think, oh, you know, somebody with psychopathy is a serial killer and all right. this stuff. That does happen. I mean, there are certainly serial killers, but much more likely it would be somebody that would try to steal five or ten dollars from you much more likely than than try to commit some sort of homicidal or assaultive act. So it gets really dramatized in the popular culture. So some people want to know what age do these traits begin to show, let's say, of the psychopath or the ASPD? And is it, they also want to know, is it nurture or is it nature or is it a combination of both of them? Great questions. Um, as for the age, you know, our, our profession, mental health counselors and all the related professions are very careful with antisocial personality disorder specifically. It's the only personality disorder of all 10, they can't be diagnosed until the age of 18. And that's because the stigma with that disorder is so negative and destructive. Now, the juvenile version of antisocial, so to speak, the closest correlate would be a disorder called conduct disorder. But I think it's kind of taken on the same stigma to some extent. So practitioners are reluctant to diagnose. But to give a direct answer, I'd be very reluctant to diagnose that below age nine or 10. So, you know, technically you could probably see callousness and um, maybe even be manipulative below that age, but 
a lot of things could explain that. Uh, for example, narcissism, which is very normal in young children, could be exaggerated, right? So I would say we'd have to be careful, but technically, you know, maybe maybe eight or nine, we could see some decent evidence of psychopathy. Uh, as to the second part of the question, the genetics, this is a great question. This is an area of debate in research right now. The predominant thinking is that, and, and you may have heard this before, that sociopathy, that is a construct where the environment causes it. Somebody who is a sociopath is created by our culture. They're created by abuse. And that a psychopath is born that way. And I think that the reason this is popular is, one, is there is some research that shows that. But two, the, the callous and unemotional component of psychopathy doesn't seem like something that the environment would cause. It seems like it's already there from a, a fairly early age. But recent studies have thrown this into a little bit of uh, controversy. Now it looks like, based on the, our best evidence, that both seem to have a similar genetic component. And it's somewhere between 30 and 50% is the genetic component and the rest wow. is the environment. So I, I guess the truth is we really don't know, but we keep running studies and, and finding slightly different results. This isn't a population that favors being studied. Uh, they don't tend to volunteer a lot. So we have small sample sizes. And if somebody's purpose is to manipulate you, it's difficult to trust them as a research participant. Right. So we, we keep trying, when I say we, I mean the research community, not me personally, but we keep trying to develop instruments that can allow somebody's true expression to come, come out, that can defeat lying. And that's very hard. I'm sure. When somebody's lying in, in research, that really throws things off. Yeah, that makes sense. And because there's probably so many of them that just aren't diagnosed, that don't realize anything's wrong with them or nobody else has mentioned that this person did this thing to them. Yeah, yeah. Lo most people with psychopathy, I would think, would never interact with mental health services unless they were arrested. Wow. Right. So this is called the, um, sometimes this is called the successful psychopath theory, where, you know, CEOs and um, other, like, high-profile leadership positions tend to have, people like that tend to have more psychopathic traits, not necessarily antisocial personality disorder, but just more psychopathy. Mm -hmm. And they're never going to come in, in most cases, and seek services. Right. It's not convenient for them to change. Yeah, I mean, uh, their their personality is uh, well-suited to, to a lot of those tasks, uh, at sure. least in, in uh, some cultures. So, yeah, if nothing's wrong or you don't see anything is wrong, you won't come in for treatment. And if you did, I imagine, it would, you know, I've experienced this. It's oftentimes an uncooperative type of situation where somebody's spouse pressures them to come in or whatever. Right. So people want to know too, do both the psychopath and the sociopath gaslight? They want to know which one is more manipulative. Yeah, I would say that both would, but far more likely with factor one psychopathy. So that interpersonal affective, it's a relational type of personality it's a, it's a set of characteristics that's more relational. So it has more of that kind of manipulation, exploiting. So trying to, you know, gaslighting, trying to convince somebody else that they're the problem in a relationship, I would associate pretty closely with narcissism and then also factor one psychopathy. Somebody with sociopathy, factor two psychopathy would be, again, more likely to be dysregulated and upset, and it would be a little more transparent. Somebody with psychopathy, factor one, is calm. So mm. in the face of somebody yelling and screaming, uh, they're not afraid. They have what's called um, physical fearlessness, right? They're not afraid of being physically harmed. So they're much more uh, adept 
at, at gaslighting, I would think, at least in my experience, than somebody with, with an emotional dysregulation. That is That emotional dysregulation you're talking about, like, does that look like rage or what does it look like? Yeah, I mean, there are a lot of theories. Uh, I think reactive anger would be uh, one of the characteristics we see quite often. And, you know, you can see dangerous acts from both types of psychopathy, but the factor one psychopath is going to be careful. They're going to take into account getting caught, going to jail, bad things like that. Somebody with factor two is not as worried about that. They're more impulsive. And, and usually when somebody's more impulsive, that has a relationship to being more violent. It's not like everyone that's impulsive is violent, but there's a relationship between impulsivity and violence. And specifically with sociopathy, it's this negative urgency we see, which means if you're in a negative mood state and you have difficulty failing to convert that into physical action, meaning you have a desire and a tendency to act out physically on emotions, that's going to really increase your chances of uh, being involved in the criminal justice system <laughs> and, and you know, being pulled into therapy as part of that kind of forensic part. So yeah, we see that a lot with, with sociopathy. So you had mentioned earlier about the combination of like the psychopath and the narcissism and the sociopath. So people want to know, can people be a combination of all three of these? Is that something that you would diagnose? Yes. Uh, it wouldn't be diagnosed necessarily. It would probably go under antisocial personality disorders. Like again, the factor one stuff is often missed, but you can have, you can have both factor one and factor two traits. Some of them don't align very well. Uh, for example, being callous, unemotional and planning carefully, that doesn't align very well with impulsivity and irresponsibility. So there'd be certain things you just wouldn't necessarily see. One, one trait I do see overlap a lot is uh, sensation seeking. It's primarily considered something for, for factor two, but we see it sometimes with factor one. And when we do see a uh, criminal who is a psychopath, oftentimes they have that sensation seeking in addition to the other traits. Is that like the adrenaline-seeking activities, or? Yes. Yeah, it's when somebody, um, so essentially somebody's looking for excitement. And this can have a very pro-social manifestation as well. We see uh, that particular facet. It's actually a fact, facet of extroversion as well. Sensation-seeking is more associated with police officers, paramedics, uh, skydivers, rock climbers, like a lot, of, a lot of professions that have an element of danger and excitement to them, but they're not antisocial. Huh. So these traits can divide off and not necessarily be related to criminality at all. So when you said earlier how the psychopath is usually less likely to get caught, I mean, they're more like charming, I guess, is what keeps them out of that. Would you say they're more intelligent than the, the sociopath would be, the ASPD, the way that they can hide that, and whereas the ASPD is just more knee-jerk reactions and impulsive? That's a good question, and, and for a long time, that was the theory that somebody with psychopathy, because they were calculating and cold, they were smarter. Uh, but actually, studies have shown there's no difference in intelligence. Wow. In intelligence. The, the difference in behavior tends to be better explained by the emotional reactivity. So the psychopath having that flat affect, totally calm, in the ASPD having that dysregulation you were talking about? Yeah, it's a matter of impulsivity and reactivity. You know, if you're, if you're impulsive and you tend to react quickly to threats or things you think are threats, um, you're going to get in trouble regardless of your intelligence. Right. I think if you, if you look at it from an observer's point of view in terms of the outcome, certainly somebody who's psychopathic seems smarter because they don't get caught right. and they don't tend to commit serious crimes because they know serious crimes carry consequences that are unacceptable. They will calculate 
and use their charm to take money. And that's, you know, that's serious, but it's not like an assault or a homicide. So from the outside, I think that's why they get the reputation as somebody that's like, like the movies always has them, have them like outsmarting the cops, you know, the FBI is chasing them and everything. And, and the psychopath is one step ahead and brilliant. And that's largely not the not the case, but they would have a better chance of that than somebody with sociopathy. Did you ever see the series The Fall? It's an Irish series about a serial killer. I'm not familiar with that. Okay, I was just wondering if you thought he was more of a psychopath or sociopath. But... I'll, I'll have to look that up. <laughs> okay. So someone else wants to know, is narcissism a mental illness? And are these three, the narcissist, the psychopath, and the sociopath, considered mental illnesses? Well, narcissism and psychopathy are traits. And actually at low levels, they're fairly normal. We're all a little psychopathic because we all have an unemotional component to us and we all calculate things out and we can all be shallow. And we're all a little narcissistic at the same time. If you weren't narcissistic, you wouldn't survive. It's a, a critical element of our survival. We have to think about ourselves first and we have to think that we matter, that we're important. When they become extreme, like when somebody's extremely deceitful and extremely manipulative or extremely grandiose and arrogant, then they would get closer to the diagnosis. And the, the one, again, that would line up somewhat with psychopathy would be antisocial personality disorder. And trait narcissism, when it gets extreme, would be narcissistic personality disorder, but only the grandiose narcissism. So only that dominant and confident narcissism that has, doesn't have a lot of experience of shame. That would be the one that would, that would lead potentially to NPD. The vulnerable narcissism, which of course is the other type, has a strong relationship to borderline personality disorder. Wow. This would be what we call the covert narcissist when you say right. vulnerable? Grandiose is overt and, and vulnerable is covert. A covert narcissist has, in my opinion, more in common with borderline than they do with narcissistic personality disorder. Wow. Can you expand a little bit on that? Yeah. One of the key parts of the vulnerable narcissistic presentation is hypersensitivity and, and a very strong experience of shame. So somebody who's covert narcissistic is down on themselves. Uh, they don't think much of themselves. They want to impress people, but it's because they have a fragile sense of self. So when we line that up with disorders and we think, okay, personality disorders, because it's a personality trait, borderline is really the one that matches that. With borderline, we see somebody who has identity disturbance, right? A sense of shame. They tend to have a lot of difficulty in relationships, turbulent relationships. They make frantic efforts to avoid abandonment, as the DSM says. And they have affective instability. They have trouble regulating emotions. So that lines up, in my opinion, in my experience, much more closely with the covert narcissist. Not 100%. It's not like you can just take them and diagnose them, but I feel like it's much stronger than any of the other cluster B personality disorders. That's really interesting. I've never seen those two compared together like that. So do you see manipulation with the borderline? With borderline personality disorder, if it's not comorbid, so if it's, if it's pure borderline personality disorder, I would say probably to some degree uh, as encapsulated in those frantic efforts to avoid abandonment, right? So somebody's trying to make sure they're not abandoned, left alone, rejected. So yeah, I think manipulation could be a component there. But in terms of the other symptoms we see with borderline, I don't see a very strong manipulation component. Uh, somebody with borderline typically isn't committing a crime to gain like profit, right? right? I, I don't see them like arrested for, for theft very often, for example. But in terms of physical violence against a romantic partner, I've, I've seen enough of that. 
Uh, that, that's actually fairly common. Wow. So when you talk about the vulnerable narcissist similar to borderline, are you talking about comorbidity there with NPD and BPD, or is that something different? Co comorbidity between borderline and narcissism? Right. Yes, those disorders actually, they can be comorbid, uh, and that's fairly common. An antisocial personality disorder is often comorbid with borderline as well. Anything in cluster B. The other, the last cluster B is histrionic, but that, that's a, a disorder we really don't use much anymore. It's still technically a disorder, but it's kind of been rolled in to borderline for most clinicians. But we do see an overlap there as well. So that's where you're going to see a lot of uh, the same characteristics kind of repeat with anyone who has one of those disorders. So the same thing applies if somebody has narcissist or narcissistic personality disorder, they're more likely to be borderline, they're more likely to be histrionic. So cluster B, in, in, you know, for, in my opinion, cluster B really holds together much better than, than like cluster C or cluster A. The other because of the similarities in the comorbidity. Yeah, especially with the comorbidity in between the different disorders in the cluster. Uh, we, we oftentimes, if we don't see a full diagnosis, we'll certainly see traits mm -hmm. that line up with those other, other personality disorders. Of, let's say, the cluster, the typical cluster B patient, what percentage of them would you say are comorbid with multiple of those personality disorders? Oh, that's a great question. Uh, the research probably has a precise answer for that. I would say, it's not something I've reviewed lately, but I would say probably there's at least a 20% chance if somebody had borderline that they would also have one other cluster B. And if you add the other clusters in there and then other disorders like depression and anxiety, it would go up to well over 50%. Like yeah. the comorbidity with borderline is very high, very high. So sometimes what happens is because borderline has the stigma associated with it, and I can understand this, a clinician will diagnose borderline, but they'll be reluctant to add narcissistic personality disorder, mm. antisocial, histrionic, because they feel like it's just stacking on the weight for no apparent gain. Uh, in the criminal justice settings, they're more likely to see that, but if somebody went to like a private practitioner, for example, it, you know, private practitioners don't typically stack on a ton of diagnostic classifications. So my guess is the comorbidity is higher than what we see uh, from research. Wow, that's really fascinating. So people want to know too, where does their deep sense of conviction come from? So I guess we're coming back to like the psychopath and the sociopath and maybe even the narcissist. Where does that deep sense of conviction come from where like they're telling a lie, that's not what happened, but they believe it so much. They want to know, do they really believe these things or do they know that it's a lie or falsehood? Well, specifically with deceitfulness, this gets into a very uh, popular issue, the difference, you know, does somebody know the difference between right and wrong? And more specifically to your question, do they know when they're lying? Do they know that when they're lying, they're actually lying? Yes. Almost always, they would know the difference between right and wrong, and they would know that if they're telling a lie, it is in fact not true. What happens though, and I think this kind of speaks to this particular question with the conviction that they have, this has to do with a different principle that really applies to all personality disorders, which is the principle of um, egocentric, right? So what this means is, and this goes back to like Freud and, and psychodynamic, but what this really means is when somebody looks at their personality and they find it acceptable, right? That's egocentric. If you found it unacceptable, that's egodystonic, and that's a different talk. <laughs> so egocentric you can kind of relate that to lack of insight. So if, if you look at your personality and it looks okay to you, and you're hurting people, and you're causing harm in society, that's not seeing picture like most people would, and that's how we think of insight. Insight's a matter of perspective, not necessarily a matter of absolute truth, just a matter of the like majority opinion. So that's something very common 
with all of the personality disorders, and in particular, in my experience, cluster B. You could argue it happens the most in cluster A, I guess, technically, but I see it as very common in cluster B. So they know what they're doing is wrong. They know that they know the nature of the behavior. Oftentimes, they understand they're angry. They understand they're lying. They understand they're committing crimes, but it's acceptable. It's somewhere at the core of personality. It's acceptable. And when people tend to stabilize, because people with psychopathy and narcissism and borderline tend to stabilize as they get older, we think the reason is they, they gain insight. They realize that they might have been the reason that relationships were failing. They might have been the reason why they went to jail. They, they kind of connect their personality to negative outcomes, almost like it was the last thing that would occur but it still has to occur at some point. You can blame everyone else, you can blame society, but eventually you're gonna introspect and you're gonna blame yourself. And it's that kind of ego dystonic moment that we think stabilizes those disorders. Wow, so that typically happens in older age? Yeah, uh, the research tells us, and I found this to be substantially supported in my experience, in the fourth decade in the 40s and the fifth decade in the 50s, uh, the majority of people with those disorders will no longer meet the criteria. Wow. So the traits, and this is an important distinction, the traits could still be there, right? You could still be a little unemotional. You could still be a little unstable effectively or whatever, but the, the technical categorical symptoms would no longer be met. So the behaviors usually stop. So but the core, go ahead, yeah, go ahead. the core personality wouldn't necessarily change a lot, but how they express their personality relationally would change. Huh. So what if they're like in their 60s, 70s? And they're just as much, maybe they're just a lot more sophisticated with their abuse than they were early because they caught on that people are catching on. At that point, that's not a stabilization, right? Right. It's not everybody. I've definitely absolutely seen people that were actually in their 80s even that still met the full criteria for like three of the four cluster base. Wow. Yeah, they're, they're definitely with some people because of their situation or because the way they're, they're designed or structured internally, they don't learn or change that behavior. They don't gain that insight. I've also found the lack of stabilization, and the research supports this as well, to be linked with an earlier onset of the disorder. Wow. So, and more severe trauma, which is, we think is what causes a lot of these adverse childhood experiences. The ones that aren't genetically caused, you're saying they typically are caused by early life traumas. Well, it's, it's both. Yeah, there's a genetic component. There's a, we call it a vulnerability, but there's also the the trigger in the environment, and a lot of times that is trauma. And I, and I find when trauma occurs really early, like three, four, five years old, the the long-term outcome tends to be a difficulty stabilizing. If it occurs later, somebody has a better chance of that. I also think, and maybe this is my bias as a counselor, those who seek counseling and participate actively in counseling tend to do a little better with outcomes right. as well. That all makes sense. People also want to know, speaking of kids, is how do you recognize that, say, like their husband or their wife is manipulating the children? Maybe they're a psychopath, a sociopath, a narcissist. They want to know how do you recognize that and how do you stop that? Right. So recognition and uh, cessation. So in recognizing, this is, this is very difficult because everybody handles situations differently. And again, we're all a little psychopathic. We're all a little narcissistic at certain times. But I would say if there was a repeated tendency, if you see the same behaviors across multiple settings, like with different children and with, with people that someone works with, that's, that would raise the most suspicion for me, rather than a difficult relationship with one person. Sometimes people just get into a dynamic where they bring out the worst in each other, but we consider these personality traits to be stable and, and 
affecting multiple dimensions. So that would be one element is look for it in many settings. And really the other element would be just line it up with what you see as the characteristics. Are you, are you seeing grandiosity? Are you seeing somebody who doesn't have guilt? You know, are you seeing the actual, you know, something you can link to concretely, like not something really subjective. So it would help to have a third party. And of course, again, it would help to have a counselor involved because a counselor can detach and, and deliberately be distant and see things more objectively. So that'd be helpful. In terms of stopping it, I'm, I'm generally, I'm somewhere between a pessimist and an optimist, <laughs> which is a little unusual for counseling because counselors, most of them are very, very optimistic in my experience. And I mean that as a compliment. I don't think that's a bad thing. But realistically, personality traits do change over time, but it happens slowly. So really the stopping behavior becomes more of physical separation uh, keeping the person away from the other person. You really can't directly change personality. So I think some people want to believe that you can reason your way out of personality disorders. Like you can talk to somebody who's narcissistic and say, please just stop. Again, with the egocentric piece, those words aren't going to be heard the way that you're speaking them. So I'm not, I don't want to be like depressing here or anything like that. There's, there's hope for anybody to change, but I think you do have to to increase your probability, you have to be realistic and understand that changing behaviors is a lot easier than changing somebody's personality. When you talked about separating them, is that what you would recommend? Like say a husband or wife sees that their kid is already being really adversely affected by their husband or wife. Would you recommend that they get divorced and they separate as much as possible so that that legacy of abuse doesn't continue into the next generation? Well, I can never, you know, I can never make that recommendation on like a general level, right? Like I can't say everyone should get divorced if they see narcissism, but I could say that, you know, maybe working out something where just physically you can be separated for a while to create some distance and maybe again, get some sort of mental health professional involved is probably more effective than trying to reason and argue and scream and yell and, and probably easier to some extent on children. But again, this is highly dependent on the situation. Right. Divorce can be a solution for some and the worst nightmare for others. Right. So there's no there's no blanket answer for that. Uh, I think, though, you know, my message would be think behaviorally and logistically, meaning where are all the people and what are their interactions and where they interact. That's probably more helpful than thinking, you know, I can change this person. Right. There's a joke about getting married and trying to change somebody. Right. Probably, you know, that's a there's actually many jokes about that. And, you know, whether somebody's narcissistic or psychopathic or not, people don't change quickly. Now, that sounds funny coming from somebody who's a counselor and we're in the business of change. I get that. But really, they don't change their personalities very quickly. They can change their behaviors very quickly. We see that all the time. So I'm kind of a, I think in terms of, you know, what works, what we see in science that works and behavioral strategies have a very good success rate. Emotional strategies that, that look at insight and all this, something that counselors generally value, we have mixed results with those. We have mixed results. And again, you would need to involve a professional. So that would, that would be my, my general advice. You know, most important thing, involve a professional, an outsider. And if somebody resists that, that's information that you may act on or may not, but that at least tells you if they're open to changing. That's great advice. Thank you so much, Todd. This has been a pleasure. You've given us wonderful information to share with everyone, and I'm so grateful that you're here today. So everybody, definitely check out Dr. Todd Grande's YouTube channel. You'll get lots more information where this came from. Thanks a lot for having me, Meredith. It's been great.
So this question is, hey Meredith, is there a way to test someone if they are a psychopathic or a narcissist? Would you maybe consider making this a theme in sauna if you have some thoughts? Thanks a lot for existing and spreading awareness. So these are called the red flags, right? The red flags of psychopathy, the red flags of narcissism. Dana, who is the leader of the Narcissist Support Group, she also has a YouTube channel. I think it's called Thrive After Abuse Now. She did a great series of like I don't know 40 or 50 red flags very similar to the ones on the psychopath free website I recommend checking out those two resources if you want like a whole list of all the red flags because like there's a lot of them to go through so check those out check out Dana's videos check out the psychopath free website where they have the red flags of the psychopath the red flags of the narcissist what are like the most important ones from there that I would look out for say you know, I'm not sure if you're talking about like you're out in the dating world or you just ended this relationship and now you're moving forward and you just want to make sure the people you're allowing in your life are not one of these people. It sounded like it's more that than you questioning a relationship in your life. So let's imagine that it's that. You want to test this person to see if they have empathy, okay? Because the psychopath, the narcissist, the sociopath, the borderline, their conscience doesn't work like ours. They have the ability to manipulate and abuse people and not feel the weight of the guilt. They don't feel that remorse. They don't feel the guilt of doing something wrong. Their conscience doesn't work like that. And what is amazing is that the conscience is directly connected to our ability to form emotional attachments with other people, which is also why these manipulators cannot form the normal human attachments that we have with other people. They don't feel that. They don't feel the depth of that emotional connection like other people do, which is why it's easy for them to treat people People like objects to use people to reach their goals and their means to discard people like a piece of trash when they're done with them so looking for that empathy looking for the empathy from the person now this can be a little tricky especially if this person is claiming to be very spiritual what you'll find like in the new age communities and probably the religious communities as well I don't have as much experience in religious communities though I do have a lot of clients who tell me that their narcissist or psychopath or sociopath was in fact a minister or reverend or some other leader in a religious organization the same sort of thing happens in the spiritual communities so the new age brand of narcissist or the new age brand of psychopath or sociopath comes across as very interested in you and telling you how spiritual you are and intuitively sensing and connecting a lot of who you are and your pain and your vulnerability and they're very good at feeling that out the narcissist is quite intuitive at sniffing out your vulnerabilities the psychopath is just uncanny the way they go right for those vulnerabilities every time it's like that is their their superhero talent is to go right for people's vulnerabilities it's complicated when this person is masquerading as an empathic person you want to be very cautious and notice is the feeling there or is it all hype? Is it hype and projected fabrication of intensity? Or is the feeling actually there? Does this person actually care about you? How do you tell? Well, when you respond and you start to talk about, like they say something, 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 and, and then you start to talk about whatever that is, your wound or something. Is the person listening with empathy and like, wow, can they feel it? Do they feel your pain when you're talking about that? Are they going wow, I'm so sorry you went through that. 
that must have been horrible, something of that nature? Or are they much more interested in being the hero? Or are they much more interested in the drama of the situation rather than your well-being. So if you tell them about some situation where you're being abused or you were being abused, are, do they seem like they're really concerned and interested? But actually when you feel deeper into that, you recognize they're only interested in the drama of it. They're getting a thrill from that, but they're not actually connected to the emotional feeling that you have about that. Because the empathy is a person's ability to feel another person, to feel what the other person feels, to truly feel it and recognize it, putting themselves in that other person's point of view. Are they able to do that or are they not? And this can be really tricky, like I said, especially with this new age brand of narcissists and psychopaths and sociopaths. So you want to be very, very cautious with that. And is this person dismissive of what you're saying? Like, do they not really pay attention? Are they not really caring? Or are they just like, yeah, that's awesome. And now moving on to me or and now moving on to whatever. Or are they just like feeding into the drama of things versus like actually caring about you? And that's something that you're not going to be able to recognize with your mind. What I find is that something you have to feel out. It's coming from somewhere like what I would call the discernment. And I did a video on discernment versus judgment. And that discernment is like a feeling you get. It comes from your intuition. And maybe it's like this icky feeling that you get. Or maybe it's this feeling that, gosh, it really seemed like he or she cared or was concerned but actually I didn't feel like they were. And I can't really explain that, but it just felt off. That's your sign, okay? That is the biggest red flag of dealing with the manipulator is that feeling you get that things are just off. Something feels off, something feels icky, something feels not so good. Something feels like you have to force yourself to get involved with that to some degree. Something that feels like you're going above and beyond what you should be doing to maintain that connection. You know, when you're getting that weird feeling that something's just not right and you can't explain it and maybe you have no rational reason to justify why, but you just have the feeling that feeling is enough. That feeling, 100%, you have to listen to that. You have to start trusting your feelings more, okay? That's how you got into the mess, is that instead of trusting yourself, you second-guessed yourself. You self-doubted your own feelings and perceptions of reality, and you allowed the other person to manipulate your reality through gaslighting, through rationalization, through minimization, through guilt tripping, through blame shifting, through diversion, right? They have all kinds of covert aggressive manipulation tactics. And if you wanna know about those, I recommend reading In Sheep's Clothing by Dr. George Simon. He really lays out each of those covert aggressive manipulation tactics that you really wanna know how to recognize 
right? It's really important because man, they just, until you see that, you don't recognize that that was actually a form of abuse. That was a form of manipulation, you know, and then you see it in this book and it's so clear. It just becomes so sterile and clinical and so clear. You're out of the fog where you were caught in before, but a hundred percent of the time your feeling will tell you. And if you tell yourself, well, well, but I didn't feel it and I didn't, but you did. If you're really honest with yourself and you look back, your feeling knew what probably happened was that you let your mind confuse you. You let your mind believe in the illusion. You let your mind rationalize. You let your mind create excuses. You let your mind believe in whatever this person was saying and you compromised your own intuitive feeling. So now moving forward, you wanna rebuild that sense of self-trust by listening to your feeling, listening to your feeling every time, even when you have no rational proof why you have to listen to that feeling and the thing is when you start listening to that feeling more and you meet new people and you're like "Mm -mm, this doesn't feel right and you listen to that and you cut it off sure you might go could i have been wrong though like could that person maybe not have been manipulative that's a possibility that you'll ask yourself that question but actually if you recognize it you're going to recognize that there's this feeling that keeps happening and your body communicates to you that feeling in a particular way it's like a message to you and your body everybody's body is somewhat different there are commonalities you might find if you're a woman you might find you just close down like everything just closes down and shuts down when you're in that situation that might be your intuitive sign and yeah it might be that you never get real proof of what was going on but you know that you listen to that feeling and you acted on that you took action to set the boundary to listen to your feeling and not second guess yourself for someone else the only other alternative is to stay in and to keep going until you get to that point where you have the hardcore proof that person is manipulating you and by that point you're hurt by that point you're more abused by that point you have faced more harm and it's just more dangerous it's much better to listen to that feeling and to act on that feeling every time. So your empathy is like essentially how you pre-qualified for that relationship. The psychopath, the sociopath, the narcissist, the borderline, they seek out someone with empathy. They seek out someone with a high degree of conscientiousness because if your conscience works really strongly, you are going to have empathy for other people. You are going to feel for other people. You are going to second guess yourself and believe in other people. They targeted you because of that. But at the same time, you can use that sense of empathy to heal yourself and move forward. That sense of empathy is also connected to your intuition, which is connected to your knowing. So turn that back inside. Instead of facing it always outside and always giving the other person the benefit of the doubt and second guessing yourself or what they're saying and turn that inward and have empathy for yourself. You gotta have empathy for yourself. How many codependents out there? We're just like, we just kept giving all this empathy to other people, but there was no empathy for ourselves. Like, where was that? We weren't taking care of ourselves. We weren't having empathy for how we felt because we were trained usually earlier in life to doubt our feelings, to doubt our perceptions of reality or that we didn't even have a right to have those because we had to take care of someone else, mommy or daddy, who was going to abuse and manipulate us into doing that. So if that was your pattern, recognize that was a lifetime pattern that you probably learned and now it's time to take care of yourself and start with having empathy for yourself first and recognize those feelings. If you get a feeling that something doesn't feel right or you get asked out on a date or you meet a new friend and they ask you to go hang out and all of a sudden like your energy just drops like you just suddenly feel deflated or you suddenly feel icky 
or you suddenly feel like you don't even want to go out there, don't do it. Listen to yourself. Listen to your empathy for yourself. Listen to your intuition and start to rebuild your sense of self-trust. That's going to help you recognize other people. The more aware you are of yourself and how your feeling communicates to you, how your intuition communicates with you, how your body communicates with you, the more easily you're going to recognize that other person. There there are a lot of sociopaths, narcissists, and, and psychopaths, borderlines too, who are, who are very easily noticeable from the get-go. Whether you're in online dating and you got a message from them or you met a person in person and like in the first five minutes you got the message or something of this nature would happen right away. Sometimes it happens really easily that you can see that because it's just so obvious. Those are the more overt types. The more covert types are the more sophisticated kind. They're harder. They're harder to see. What I'm noticing now is when dating these types, the really covert, really sophisticated types, it takes about one month. One month is about the limit. And then the true colors start to show. They can maintain the facade and the charade for several weeks. And so I would take things real slow and real easily. It's like a probation period to see if that person really does deserve to be a priority in your life. And over the period of that month, you will figure it out. If you're listening to your intuition, if you're paying attention to yourself, if you're really being present with yourself and noticing how you feel when that person is with you or when you're on the phone or texting or thinking about that person, notice how you're feeling. Okay, that is gonna tell you 100% of the time the reality. As long as you don't get lost in your mind and start going down that path of rationalization and blah, blah, blah. Because that's where you know, your mind can make up a thousand different illusions but you're body always tells you the truth. So you want to listen to that. And what you'll notice is that during that month, if you are really present and you are really aware, you will see the signs even of that sophisticated covert type. They do reveal themselves. If I look back a hundred percent of the time, that covert aggressive person made it very clear in that first month. There was always something and it's usually something around your boundaries. They don't like when you have boundaries. You know, when you first start to meet somebody, sometimes you're overly pleased you're overly accommodating and then it starts to feel uncomfortable so then you're like okay well I'll set this boundary and then you set the boundary and they get a little bit upset and then you keep setting a boundary and they get more upset and then you start to see their true colors come out so that's another really big test of the toxic person is to set boundaries. Set boundaries because if you have boundaries that will protect yourself from toxicity getting in, that will protect you from expending all of your energy, attention, focus, and awareness on toxic people who don't deserve that energy, attention, focus, and awareness. And your boundaries will make a very clear line protecting what matters to you and what you value. And it sends a message to that person. And if you enforce those boundaries and that person doesn't like that because they can't get what they want from you because of that boundary, they're going to make it really clear because the overt type is going to be overtly aggressive. It's going to be very clear that they're imposing on your boundary to get what they want. They're just going to mow over that boundary and aggressively seek what it is they're trying to get. The more covert and sophisticated they are at hiding their manipulation, the more tricky it gets. It starts to look more like guilt tripping. It starts to look more like shaming. It starts to look more like it's all your fault, but it's not. You're selfish for having that boundary. 
boundary. You're so selfish for not giving them what they want. It starts to look more like that. Recognize that's a form of manipulation as well. That's also a toxic person and maintain your boundaries because your boundaries will keep toxic people away. So if you get discarded or the toxic person suddenly drops you and they're gone, count that as a blessing because that person recognized your boundaries. It means you did something right. You set the boundary. They didn't like your boundary. They couldn't get what they wanted. They moved on to someone else. They might test you again to see if you're now willing to compromise your boundary. Now they've taken away, you know, their presence from, you know, like through a form of punishment and they try to come back and see if you miss them and blah, 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 and don't accept that. At that point, you want to go no contact. As soon as someone ghosts, they disappear, they discard you. You want to just go no contact entirely and understand that that means you did something right. That means you set a boundary. You didn't let them take advantage of you. You didn't let them manipulate you into breaking that boundary for them. And that's why they disappeared. So if you're unsure about a person in your life, set a new boundary because probably you're unsure because something feels icky. You know, you're compromising yourself in some way with them. So when you set that boundary, it's going to become very clear who's toxic and who is not. And, and that'll reveal things real quickly. So empathy and boundaries. And if you want a more comprehensive list of all those signs, again, check out Dana's videos on Thrive After Abuse. Check out Psychopath Free website on the red flags of narcissists, psychopaths, and sociopaths. And educate yourself because the more you know, the better. And the thing is, you don't want to be so caught up in your mind and thinking about all this stuff that you miss the most obvious thing in front of you because that could happen. You could be looking so hard for these things, but what's appearing is in a different form because that, that manipulative energy can take all sorts of forms. It can appear really attractive. It can appear really disgusting. It can appear really seductive. It can appear really pulling in like I'm the victim, help me, heal me sort of thing. It can come across in all sorts of different ways. It can, can be difficult to recognize and the thing is that more than anything the telltale thing is your feeling Your feeling if you don't feel good something's not right Something's not right and you want to get really honest with yourself about what that is So I know it's it's really difficult when you're meeting new people or you're putting yourself out there to meet new people You're afraid you're afraid of who you're gonna be meeting and are you gonna recognize it and are you gonna get conned again? So the more you focus on the feeling and being connected to your intuition, the better. That is your number one sign, your number one way of recognizing who is toxic and who is not, on who it feels good to be around and who it does not. So listen to that and you're gonna rebuild your sense of self-trust. That is one of the biggest wounds after abuse, the deception, the betrayal that takes place and the self-doubt, the destroyed sense of self-trust. You've lost trust in yourself, you've lost trust in other people and you've usually lost trust in the universe and in God because how could that happen to you? Like how, how can a God who loves you allow that to happen? How could a universe that supports your existence allow that to happen. You can go through this. That's part of the PTSD crash is that self-doubt in the destroyed sense of self-trust and the antidote to that and how to rebuild that is to listen to your intuition, to act on it and to protect yourself with those boundaries. Thank you so much for tuning into this episode of the Inner Integration Podcast. I hope you learned something today that helps you see from a new perspective so you can take new action and transform your life after narcissistic abuse. Remember, you are enough, you matter, and you got this. If you liked this episode and want to hear more, 
You can subscribe to get automatic updates on new podcast episodes as they're released. Visit us online at www.innerintegration.com where you'll get a free three-part video course when you enter your name and email on the homepage. Get loads of more free content to help you heal after narcissistic abuse on YouTube, Facebook, and Instagram. Big hug to you.